Would you like to become a fascinating personality, break free from plateaus, and gain power over your mental resources and your full potential? You came to the right place. Welcome to a magical journey to yourself. This show is made in Germany. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or PureMindMagic.club. Welcome to Season 1, Shaping Your Reality. And here is your host, international magician, speaker, and book author, Victoria Mavis. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pure Mind Magic and this special for Halloween today. So I was looking to find something for you that has to do with fears, scary things, haunted houses, horror films, and I'm pretty sure I found the right fit. I met Scott Bradley in Philadelphia at Podcast Movement and heard about his new book, Screaming for Pleasure. Scott is really an expert when it comes to horror, so he has seen more than 1,600 horror movies. And in this episode, he will share all his wisdom on horror, haunted things, stories, strange energies, and why it can be really helpful and even healthy when we are screaming. And he will give us an insight into his new book that will be out in November, November 26, 2018, Screaming for Pleasure. And when you want even more, I have a cool tip for you. In the show notes, you will find a link where you can get a completely free audio book. You can test this service for 30 days. I'm an affiliate. And by clicking on the link, you land directly on the website. And they have, I think, more than 150,000 different audiobooks. And I think for tonight, it could be really cool to get a horror story that really scares you and maybe you and your friends or your family. So check that out. It is completely free and you can choose for yourself. But now I can't wait to welcome Scott Bradley to the show and discuss all this Halloween horrible things. So lean back and prepare to be scared at least a little bit hi scott welcome to pure mind magic ah thank you so much for having me on victoria i'm very happy to be here scott today will be a really spooky scary episode and <laughs> maybe we just start out with a special place you have been not long ago can you tell us 
Sure. Uh, for anybody who's listening, I uh, reside in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the San Francisco Bay Area is a very interesting place in, in, in its own right. But there is a spot inside of the area down in San Jose, California, known as the Winchester Mystery House. Now, this is a mansion that Time Magazine has listed as one of the top 10 most haunted locations in the world. And I just happened to go there. Now, this mansion was an infamous house built by Sarah Winchester. She was the heiress to the Winchester rifle fortune. Uh, she was convinced that she was haunted by the ghosts of everyone that was killed by the family rifles. If you've not heard of the Winchester Mystery House, this is a house that started with a few uh, rooms and a few floors, and it ended up with 106 different rooms inside of it. It ended up with very strange uh, architectural anomalies like staircases that go nowhere. They just end up at the top of the, the, of the hallway or up on the roof. There are windows that are in some of the floors. There are false walls and there are curves that happen in the house so that you cannot see from one end to the other. This was an addition that she was doing because she kept adding rooms onto the house to hide from the ghosts. She wanted Use the ghost from finding her. There was only one shower in the entire place, but there were 47 bathrooms. and It was just an insane place to be. She kept adding rooms for 38 years until the day she died. Wow, that is really interesting. And Scott, I can't wait that you tell us how you felt there when you have been there and your experiences and feelings. So we have a a lot of great stuff to talk today, like about your upcoming book, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. This is just a great claim, I think. And <laughs> also talking about all the horror things so special for Halloween today. But before we dive into all of that, can you give us a short overview of who you are and how you turned into an author? Sure. Uh, I am a person who has started a podcast about two and a half years ago. Uh, prior to that, I had worked in Silicon Valley and I had been in the military, but I had always been a fan of horror films. Uh, a big cineast. I love all sorts of films, but my heart belongs to horror. And about two and a half years ago, I decided to uh, do the craziest thing I could possibly do, uh, walk away from my, my job and start doing a podcast. And it's called Hellbent for horror and basically i'm here to remind everyone that they used to love horror when they were kids they secretly still do and i try to remind them about the beauty of what there is in the art and metaphor and allegory that horror is rich with and that it's one of the oldest storytelling styles that there is and so after about uh, two and a half years i started to listen to what people were saying to me over and over again you know you put so much into these shows there's so much history that you put in there you put a little bit of your own personal viewpoints in there and you talk with a passion about what horror feels like when you're listening or watching it and of course i talk about books and movies as well as music and plays because all of that falls into the same kind of storytelling tradition. So uh, the book uh, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy was uh, the uh, natural offshoot from my podcast. And really uh, the book is a love letter to all things that go bump in the night and how horror 
not only reinvents itself to reflect each generation's anxieties, but it also can be healing as well as thrilling. And when we talk about healing, I'm really talking about emotional healing. Yeah, that is so interesting that you're mentioning it. And, you know, Scott, I'm going to share a really personal story with you because oh, yay. Um, <laughs> you were talking about this, uh, the, the healthy thing. So uh, when I lost my mom, what was really tough and unexpected just a few days before Christmas in 2012, I did exactly that. You know, I went the day after to the cinema and watched a horror movie with my friend because I thought or I had this feeling of uh, fire with fire, you know, because mm -hmm. I felt so devastated and so lost and I didn't know what to do and how my life would go on and everything. I was so overwhelmed. And then I picked, really picked the horror movie for it. And I know in your book, you mention that uh, sometimes watching a horror movie can give us the sense of having the control back when we don't have it over our life. So can you explain a little bit what happened there and how horror can really be healthy for us in really tough situations in our lives? Well, I'm, first off, I'm so sorry about your, your mother, and I'm uh, glad that you have been able to cope with that in, in many different ways, I'm sure. Uh, horror, I do feel, is a great coping mechanism for some. Some may not, but I tend to go towards that, that Jungian idea that we all have persona that we wear, uh, the masks off of the wall, and that we all have a shadow self. And that shadow self, for the most part, we try to ignore. And if you listen to Jung, what uh, he says in his books is you can uh, ignore the shadow at your own peril uh, when you do. And it finally decides it wants to speak to you and it's done uh, at being ignored. You end up with things like divorce and uh, loss of uh, your job and things because it just explodes. But horror allows us to have that healthy handshake with the things that are dark inside of us that are natural for everyone. Uh, I don't believe that there are bad emotions. Being stuck in an emotion for way too long might be bad, but I think all of them have their use. They're all there for a purpose. And horror is an emotion. It's named after an emotion. And it has a purpose. And sometimes that purpose is to relieve us of that feeling of helplessness. And why I say that is that Uh, I'll give my example. I call it my first kiss. My first kiss with horror. It was the movie that galvanized me as a child. And normally, uh, probably five out of ten children would not watch a horror movie after the horrible experience that I had. But the other five can't help but recall how they felt and somehow start to resolve what happened and it, it go past that and find themselves in a spot where they go, yeah, well, I kind of survived something really interesting there. For me, uh, as a child, I was eight years old when I saw a movie called Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue. And it's a pretty intense horror film. The first 15 minutes are absolutely galvanizing, and that's what I got to see. And it shows this slow, very symbolic, very stylistic death of a child by drowning on the premises when the parents are inside of the house. One of the worst, most horrible things you could possibly think of. The child who drowns is eight years old. I'm eight years old. And I watch this. At the time, my family is going through a really, really bad divorce. And I am left alone all the time. 
and my parents are going through whatever they have to go through at that time. And so I'm kind of a forgotten child in front of a television set. And I realize that my life is not in my control at all and that it is about to change drastically. And I have no idea what life without either mom or dad is going to be like. And I have no say. And when I see this movie, the parents start screaming and crying when they see that the child has died. And that is where all the terror hits me. The child drowning was traumatic, but it was the father wailing and falling in the ground, in the mud, uh, weeping. And the mother coming around the corner and seeing it and screaming this banshee cry. That was what was terrifying me. It told me that parents don't always save you. Parents can't always be there. Parents fail. And that was a terrifying thing to hear. But then I got over it because, see, I could get up and leave at any time I wanted from that movie. What I did is I found that at that time, eight years old, I'm not thinking these things, but I'm feeling these things. I suddenly feel a calm after three bad nightmare nights. I mean, I did not get it immediately, but I started to feel this strength. I got through this thing that I had been so afraid of. And there have been several times in my life where horror has kind of done that for me. I've, I believe that horror works kind of like music does. Music can change your mood with just a certain tone. And you don't know why you're suddenly happy and you don't know why you're suddenly sad. And sometimes you go to a concert or a dance hall just to sweat, just to get some kind of energy out of you. I think that music and horror address the tension we don't even know we have. We can't even articulate it. We could go to a, a psychiatrist and speak of these things and say, why do you feel so bad all the time? And you'd be like, I don't necessarily know. And a good psychiatrist, months and months and months later, perhaps, would be able to single out what the problem is if you're entirely honest with them. But sometimes there are things that we just could never articulate. They are emotional. They are almost like small possessions in and of themselves. And the shock of a scare especially in a community of people, when you're dealing with, say, going to a movie in a theater, or you're sitting with your friends, and everyone jumps at the same time, you are no longer alone. Whatever your issue is, whatever your problem is, it has kind of slid down just a little bit. Now, it's obviously not a perfection pill, but it is something that I think really allows us to Go into, like you mentioned a haunted house, you asked me about haunted houses, and I gave you the Winchester Mystery House. Well, why is there a haunted house in every town in the world? No matter where you go, there's going to be either a haunted house or a haunted place. It can be a metaphor or a symbol for loneliness and loss, but it can also be the hero's journey. It can be the dark forest that you must go into, come out the other side, and be strong. And at times, I think that's what horror does for us. We go to things that we can't control, that we are terrified of, and we get a small dose of it, kind of like a vaccine. <laughs> and you go through this and you go, it didn't kill me. and I'm okay. Because there's always going to be a level of distance, especially when you're talking about horror movies that can go all over the map. It can be a crazed person. It can be a demonic possession. It can be a ghost. It can be a monster. Very few of us are afraid of giant ants and monsters, but there are many movies that have these things. Because when we're watching it, 
we can project whatever it is that ails us on that monster. And in certain rare occasions, like Frankenstein, we may find ourselves relating to the monster and not the villagers. And I think that that's also an interesting thing that horror allows us to do. It allows us to embrace the outsider, find our tribe, and relieve the pressure that may be building inside of us just from being in this modern world. Very interesting, Scott, what you brought up there. And talking about all these emotions, and as you said, horror is an emotion, there's also a story that is kind of magical around yourself that thanks to horror, you reconnected with your first love. How did that happen? <laughs> well, um, I would say that uh, the the first love that I usually talk about in the book is is horror itself. But what I found was through a, a series of very bizarre events, uh, I was able to reconnect with uh, a woman that I had met uh, in high school. And We uh, had some of the same friends, but she was a very, very nice uh, girl uh, who was uh, on the honor committees all the time, had great grades, and ended up going off to be a microbiologist uh, for the U.S. Department of Agriculture now. Uh, but she was obviously way out of my league because I was the guy who smoked underneath the uh, the benches <laughs> at the sports <laughs> games and I was in constant trouble and uh, basically a nightmare in some ways. But she was uh, attracted to the passion that I had. And when I would speak about music at that time and when I would speak about movies, specifically horror, which she could not stand, and she still cannot stand to this day. <laughs> She's a science fiction girl. <laughs> but uh, – Uh, she was really uh, attracted to that. However, we went in different directions. I ended up uh, leaving town and going into the military, and I spent some time there. And when I got out of that, I was a little bit wayward. And through a series of weird events, I found myself in the town where she was going to graduate school, which was in uh, another state. Uh, it's kind of a weird happenstance, but I kind of knew that she was there and I guess I was kind of veering my way. But by the time I was going there, uh, I had some trouble reacclimating to civilian life after the military. A lot of folks, when they uh, first get out of the military, they have a, a little bit of time where uh, it's such an extreme difference in how you live your life in the military and the kind of discipline that's there and the kind of regimen that's there. It's really hard in the very beginning for you to handle uh, a time when nobody tells you what to do, where to go, and everybody's acting just a little bit differently. There's uh, there's a lot of loose uh, air <laughs> around you that you can't really focus on. And some people get over that relatively quickly, but I didn't. I had a little bit of problem with it, and I was somewhat antisocial, uh, and I didn't really want to have any friends. And I almost went off of the radar for a while there. I kind of traveled from state to state and did odd jobs and, and was a rambling man with most of my belongings in a bag. And I found myself in this town, And I found a video store and I hadn't spoken a lot, like a long conversation, certainly not passionate in about a year. Uh, I would speak to people very little. Uh, and I looked at it all as a transaction. We say yes, we say no, and then we go our separate directions. Maybe I'll have a drink with you. And I just decided 
off on a whim to go into this video store. And when I walked in, I just found this selection of films that were in front of me that rekindled all this passion. It was as if someone who uh, had amnesia was given a key that they had as a child or a doll that they had as a child. And all of a sudden, all these memories started to flood back. So those memories started to flood back in and I could not help myself. I was compelled to talk to the owner. And from that, I ended up getting a job, staying in that area, finding this woman, spending time with her, and we ended up getting married and driving across the country and living in San Francisco for the last 25 years. So uh, what I can say is uh, what I found from horror, which was just my whatever you want to call it, some might call it a trigger, uh, whatever it was, the uh, the thing that was the monitor of my passion was horror. And I was given that passion for life again from the weirdest of ways, just from the memories of happier times and learning how I could speak to people again without feeling self-conscious. I was able to talk with someone who saw me as an equal no matter what because we were both fans of these crazy films. And that gave me a tribe. And that tribe I see at multiple conventions across the country at this point. Wow, that is incredible, Scott. What an inspirational story, I would say, and all like connected with horror. So you watched already over 1,600 horror films. That is quite a lot. And, <laughs> I started in 1974, so. <laughs> okay, okay, I got it. So for quite some time now. And you mentioned that there are different styles in films, so like even different genres in horror. Can you describe a little bit the different genres? And also maybe can you give like two film tips for tonight for Halloween, something that is really scary and really good horror movies? Oh, boy, this sounds like a what I love a good challenge. <laughs> so uh, what I'll say about uh, horror is that it's a really an interesting thing because when and one of the things that I did want to bring up is when I talk to people, a lot of times say I go to conventions, uh, I think we met at podcast movement in Philadelphia. And I was speaking to a, a lot of people there who were not horror fans. And they let me know. As soon as I said what my podcast was, oh, well, I, I hell bent for horror. And they go, oh, well, I, I, I'm not a fan of horror films. I hear that more often than not from people who email me from after listening to my podcast. And what I find is that the people who love horror speak to me for about a half an hour about their movies. And someone who doesn't like horror speaks to me about a half hour about the movies that they couldn't stand. <laughs> so it is one of those things where we're just attracted to that darkness in a way. We may be a little bit frightened of it, but we tend to really be fascinated by it. And I tell people that uh, horror is very subjective. Everything in art is subjective, but horror is most certainly because what scares people, what is frightening, what is suspenseful, what is realistic is different for just about everybody. And that's why horror is so great is that it has this great diversity to it. Most people who do not like horror usually judge the entire genre by the film that they hate. <laughs> Whatever it was that they saw that they could not stand, every horror movie is that horror movie. And the great news for anybody who doesn't want to watch a slasher film or doesn't want to watch a possessed baby film, there are movies that are much more realistic. There are movies that have killers that are 
are humans. There are movies that are based on myth. There are uh, movies that are based uh, in different time periods. Uh, there is uh, an abundance of what horror does. And if we look at the definition of horror, it's an intense feeling of shock and dread and repulsion or terror. I take that directly from the dictionary because people will argue with you about what a horror movie is. People will say, well, that isn't a horror movie. It didn't scare me. One of the big things was uh, here in the United States, we had Get Out and we had The Shape of Water, two horror films that were up for best picture. One did win, Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. I had several horror fans tell me that that's not a horror movie. And I said, well, okay, it's a movie that has a monster in it, and it has men who act more monstrous than the monster, and the monster is a god. And they go, yeah, but it's more of a romance. And I said, well, you did hear of Phantom of the Opera, right? And you may have heard of King Kong, and you may have actually heard of The Creature of the Black Lagoon, and all of these are misspent love stories. These are romances that happen to have monsters in them, or they are monster movies that happen to be abundant enough and strong enough to have romance in them. It is not mutually exclusive. And people go, well, it's not a horror movie. It's a monster movie. And I go, okay. So basically what you're saying is that you're a resident of the state of Kansas, but you're not a resident of the United States. That's pretty much what you're telling me. Uh, horror is a, a monster movie is a genre within horror, a subgenre. So we have things like monster movies. And if I had to give anybody a monster movie to watch, I would say that uh, if you love old fashioned horror, you could watch Creature of the Black Lagoon, or you could watch King Kong. If, on the other hand, you wanted something new, new monsters, there's some really interesting things that are out there. There's a movie called uh, The Ritual, which came out in 2017. You can find it streaming on uh, services like Netflix and Amazon. And it has a great monster that is part of what I consider as a subgenre folk horror. The monster is based on ancient folk ideals and the movie takes place uh, in sweden in the dark dark forest in the northern area of sweden and these folks get lost in there and there are runes on the trees symbols that are on the trees and they find certain creatures that have been devoured and there's something lurking in the forest with them and that movie's really interesting because it's not only a monster movie about the creature it's a monster movie about cowardice that the main character has been caught in an act of cowardice early in the film. And it is his curse all the way through the movie. And everybody that is with him on this trip knows that he's a coward. And it is his shame. And it's almost as if this creature goes after people who are wounded psychically like that. So you have monster films like that. Then you have horror films that are more uh, psychological. They're probably my favorite at this moment because they're really going into some dark, dark areas. There's a new film called Hereditary, which I think is magnificent. If anybody is a fan of older films, they may love Rosemary's Baby, which is relatively famous, uh, a movie with Mia Farrow where uh, she is pregnant and she's living in a, a beautiful apartment in uh, uh, the upper west side of Manhattan and something's wrong with her baby. And it seems like all the people that are around her are trying to keep her inside of this, this apartment and not leave. And it has all this to do with paranoia of having a living thing 
growing inside of you and the anxiety that comes with that. But of course, that movie takes it to a supernatural level. And Hereditary does the same thing. It's kind of a modernized version of Rosemary's Baby and movies like Ordinary People that deal with grief and loss. I find that uh, people who watch Hereditary, the people who have just recently dealt with grief or are still working through grief, love this movie because it gets right into the horror of it. People who are not necessarily feeling that get very uncomfortable. It's a, it's a great movie about the psychology of guilt and grief and loss and the idea that families genetically can carry certain things that are kind of like curses from one family member to another. And it deals with that anxiety uh, there are possession films. One that has scared me the most probably in any of the different genres that there are of horror, the possession films. Because when I was a child, my family was in a fundamentalist religion uh, that uh, was actually kind of a cult. They believed that the world was going to end in 1975. There was going to be doomsday. But the big thing was that they believed that demons were standing right next to you all the time, waiting for you to sin. And if you did sin, they were going to jump inside of you and wear you like a human suit. And as a child, I believed that completely. The funny thing is when you grow up with that kind of thing for the formative years in your life, even though I am uh, uh, an adult male who has learned a whole bunch of things in my life, when things settle in the house for no good reason, there's sound that happens that shouldn't be happening, uh, door closes for no reason, my first thought is demon. <laughs> and that's because it is still deep, deep, deep in my dinosaur brain. Uh, it was put there. But the great ones, you cannot beat the exorcist. But if you're looking for something that is more stylistically chiller, uh, I would say that the Conjuring films, the very first Conjuring and the very first Insidious are great horror films that don't have a lot of gore, don't have a lot of profanity, uh, don't have a lot of nudity, and yet are just as frightening as anything that was in The Exorcist. Highly stylized films that really go into uh, some of our concerns about family once again. Many horror films go at the anxieties of the time. And so modern films as of right now, there's a lot of fear of what's going to happen to families. And I think that's very interesting. And one of the things that I think horror is so great at, if you look at any decade and you want to find out what people were worried about on a social and political level, take a look at the horror films because those horror films are trying to hit on the raw nerve, whether you were pro or con on any subject, that subject was going to pop up in a horror film. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Uh, there's a psycho killer. They're probably my least favorite is the slasher film. I find them terribly boring. <laughs> and I think that they're also terribly uh, safe, even though they're full of gore and they are called misogynistic. And I, that's arguable. I think there are some that certainly are. I think that they're unimaginative. And I don't think that they ever challenge the uh, audience. Uh, I think that some older films like Peeping Tom uh, by, um, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the director is right now. Uh, but uh, it destroyed his career. He was known for the red shoes and black Narcissus and all these great films. Uh, and his career was destroyed because he made a movie about a psycho killer, uh, who forces the people that he's killing to watch their deaths. But the thing that's really disturbing about the movie is he films it. 
and we watch these films as he's watching those films. And so we are somewhat uh, complicit in what is happening just by watching the movie. Anyway, in 1960, they did not like that idea. But Psycho is probably the masterpiece of the Psycho films, uh, the horror of the monster that is the boy next door. Uh, there are others that are relatively strong. If we're talking about stuff uh, that has to do with my hometown, San Francisco, uh, we have uh, Zodiac, where the Zodiac killer was an actual killer who uh, murdered quite a few people here and was never caught. And that is a pretty disturbing, scary little film. Uh, there are several different versions of that. And um, there's science fiction uh, hybrids. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, I think, is still that and Alien, the original movie Alien from 1979, are unrivaled. Even after all of these years, they may be perfect films. And there are very few perfect horror films, but Jaws, I put right at the top of the list. That is a movie made exactly like the monster that we fear. It doesn't matter if it has a fin, doesn't matter if there's water. The ocean is basically the underside of our bed. It is just perfectly metaphoric and they don't show the shark for the longest time. And the first half hour of that film is one shock after another of just pure dread. And dread, I think, is the key ingredient for a horror film. If you have that dread, everything else kind of falls into place. So, Scott, you are really a walking library when it comes to horror and <laughs> horror films. So tell us a little bit more about your book, Screaming for Pleasure. So when you're listening right now on Halloween, it will be out in November, November 26, 2018. You can pre-order it now from Amazon or when you listen to that later, it might be out already. But let us in and the horror secrets of Screaming for Pleasure. Well, Screaming for Pleasure is uh, really uh, this love letter from everything that uh, I can think of from my childhood to all the different things that I think are interesting to people that may not like horror films or may not know that they like horror films. I talk to many people who go to conventions and we sit up all night till dawn talking about our passion for horror because we it's almost like jazz music, musicians playing off of each other. But what we all agree on is that we are not hoarders. When you are truly having something that makes you excited and happy and passionate, you can talk all night. You can hear that I could probably talk all night, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we cope with trauma and tragedy. A lot of the people who uh, I talk to are wonderfully happy now, but may not have had great childhoods. We renew that passion for life. We indulge in a playfulness that we may not have had before. And we find a sense of belonging and community. And no matter who you are, if you have those things, your life is happier and healthier. So I kind of give a step-by-step uh, way through that in my own little way. And uh, the first chapter, I mentioned that I had a first kiss with horror and it was this movie that I saw it as a, I was eight years old. So I speak about that. It's my first kiss and that's how horror hooks you. Uh, 
But one of the big things is that we also find community. And I talk about bonding over popcorn. That would be chapter two. We watch horror with an audience. There is uh, more and more people who are watching movies in solitary areas. They're in their house or watching them on their phone. And what I like to do is try and encourage them to at least get a few friends to come over or go out to a theater. It's a little expensive to go to a movie theater these days. But if you get inside of a movie theater and you sit with everyone, you all start to bond because you're all either going to think the movie sucks at the same time or you're going to think that it's great and you're all going to jump and scream and laugh at the fact that you just jumped at something that's not even in the room. But it has captured you. And I talk a little bit about Jaws. I talk about John Carpenter's The Thing. But I also talk about some non-horror films. And I add non-horror films to get people who are not uh, pros at watching horror to understand the emotion that I'm trying to get at. So I talk about when I was a kid and I saw Rocky in 1976 when it first came out. And it was not a big film when it first came out. It was a very low-budget, independent film, and it got this groundswell. It was the movie everybody needed. We were living in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia at that time, in northeastern Pennsylvania. And we had just gone through all of this strife that had happened in the United States, uh, loss of a president, leaving office in disgrace, uh, the end of Vietnam, uh, a lot of trouble around equal rights, uh, things uh, like unemployment were running rampant. And so being a blue collar person, you felt left behind. And Rocky is the ultimate blue collar hero. He believes in himself, even when nobody else believes in him. And he doesn't even want to win. All he wants to do is stand there and get hit and still be standing when the champ, the best person at his craft, comes at him. And that spoke so strongly for the audience that it was the first time that I ever saw adults cry, I saw adults cheer, and I saw adults jump up. And I call that a spiritual experience in that chapter. And I use that to talk about the blasphemous experiences, <laughs> which is what horror can give you. When you have these moments that are so uh, electrifying that you are pinned to the back of the seat. And sometimes you walk out of that with great enjoyment and sometimes you don't. I've been coming out of movie theaters where I will see the other troubled person who was watching that movie and is shaken to their core. And I go over and we talk for 10, 15 minutes about what was personal about that film. And that's one of the great things that you get to do. You could never do that to a, a stranger outside of the arts. And horror allows you to go to that primal place, that place that most uh, polite society areas in your life will not allow you to talk about. It would be gauche to be able to talk about. But if you don't like movies, I also talk about books, how literature can empower you. And I talk about how I found that the terrible things that I was thinking in my mind and the reason that I called them terrible was because of my highly religious background. Everything that I thought was wrong. I didn't really believe in this thing that was really kind of a cult. I didn't believe the world was going to come to an end. It just seemed so weird. But me thinking that was a sin and I felt terrible. But through books, I had the very words that were in my head written in print in front of me. And that gave me a quiet revolution. I didn't have to have the big screams. 
And one of the things that I tell people who don't really like horror films, you know, sometimes they're very loud and they're very aggressive and you don't want to go through that. But you can basically sit on a, uh, a bus and read a book and have a horrible murder happen with, right in front of other people and they'll never even know what's happening. And you're releasing that tension, you're getting all that excitement and your mind is working on the book level that uh, is probably stronger than what you can see when you're watching a film because you're bringing the monster all of its detail. And I think books can be very personal in that way. I talk about music. I talk about how we scream for pleasure. We exercise our demons, sometimes through devil music. And I talk about my past as uh, a uh, fundamentalist devil worshiper (laughs) because I loved heavy metal music and punk music. And that was at one point, uh, especially in the 80s, it was considered by many people to be a real threat. Is it? Well, I'm not going to speak on that. I let everybody come up with their own answer. But what I believe is that, and I mentioned it earlier, that you are able to really get to some emotions and dreads and pains and sorrows and get rid of them through music. And I talk about one particular song that at one point I think saved my life when things were really, really down. And I just heard the right lyrics at the right time. So I believe that scary music and uh, humorous music uh, can really take you to different places. And I even have a chapter about uh, fighting your phobias with phantasms, with horror movies. Now, I'm not telling anybody to get off their medication. (laughs) I'm not telling them to stop going to the doctor. But I do say that if you're the kind of person who kind of gets this itch to maybe push the boundaries of when they feel creepy. I talk about different movies with different phobias. If you're afraid of spiders, I give a couple movies that have great, horrible, scary spiders. If you're afraid of needles, I give a few movies that really deal with uh, needles. Or if you're afraid of diseases, I talk about a few movies that will make you take many, many showers if you watch them. Now, obviously, if you're really someone who deals with an actual terrible phobia, I would not tell you to watch those. But if you're kind of like me, who the person who eats hot peppers just to see how far up they can go on the Scoville scale (laughs) before they can't take it anymore. Uh, This is a fun way to kind of laugh at these things that we have that are somewhat irrational, but they have so much power until you shine the light on them. So many of my fears are not real. My fears come down to basically two things. I'm afraid I'm going to lose what I have. I'm afraid I'm not going to get something that I need. And those fears are usually irrational and not real. And horror, in a way, allows us to take a look at these things and make them into archetypes and kind of laugh at them over time. I also talk about uh, facing mortality through horror movies. Uh, Being that I was in the military, I was a crash firefighter, I had seen a few dead bodies. And I had seen a dead body when I was, I think, 10. Uh, somewhere in that age, age area, my, uh, landlord, uh, at our house that we were renting, uh, had a heart attack and died and fell down the stairs on the other side. Uh, it was a house, a duplex, two homes in one building. And he fell and died on his side. And through all the chaos that was happening with the ambulance and everything, I saw that body. And so I do an entire chapter about death 
and how it is natural. And yet it is the most terrifying thing. It's the big kahuna. It's what we all fear. Uh, we look at the devil and all of that, but the thing that we truly fear is not existing. And so I talk about a lot of movies that helped me get around that or that I saw and I was fascinated with because I felt that they were actually trying to get me to look at, at, uh, death as something that was natural, kind of like the seventh seal. I talk about the seventh seal death in that knows all the chess moves from the beginning to the end, no matter what the knight in that film does, he is going to end exactly when he's supposed to end. And so there's a horror version of that in a movie called phantasm that came out in 1979, where the mortician of a mortuary is death. And we are watching a child's fear of having their family slowly disappear. So I do that kind of thing. I also talk about how horror echoes real life. We have many movies that are out there that are allegories to things that you would never sit and watch a movie because it's just too painful. And horror movies allow us to look at those things. Uh, a great one that is wonderful in allegory is the original Night of the Living Dead with George Romero, where you can look at what was happening in 1968 and whether it was intentional or not, what that film was actually giving you. The visual images were like an exorcism for people who had just gone through the assassination of a presidential candidate and the assassination of a president and a riot that burnt down Detroit. All of these things that were happening they were actually being kind of exploded on that screen. And you can see that through different eras. And I take some of those movies from eras from the 50s, actually from the 20s. I talk about the cabin of Dr. Caligari and, of course, uh, what was going on in the Weimar Republic and all of that at that point. So uh, the ways that that movie was working on the psyche of the, 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 the fellows that were living in Germany at that point and – how German expressionism, that entire wonderful uh, genre itself, really gave birth to the modern horror film, where you take the internal and you bring it out externally. And so I, I could go on and on, but that's the kind of thing that I speak about in the book. <laughs> wow, Scott, that is really amazing content. And I think there is something for everyone in the book and really we can dig deeper on our connection to horror and how it can make us happy. And I think it's also the same when you are in a theme park and uh, riding mm -hmm. a roller coaster. So there is this thrill and this horror and you're afraid because you don't know how it will feel to ride it and will you come out alive so after watching Final Destination and all those films. <laughs> <laughs> so really interesting thing and there's also said that um, when you're in line for uh, riding the roller coaster that the other person that is with you will you will find him or her more attractive because of all the adrenaline <laughs> in uh, your body. So there are really scientific researches to that. So oh, yes. I think um, there's a lot uh, and we could talk on for hours and hours with you and going through all the horror movies. So I will put the show, the, in the show notes, a link for the book to grab it. And you said it's available internationally. So perfect for all my listeners in the United States, in Europe and Australia. And I What? got some new listeners in Dubai as well. So interesting there. And Yay. of course, I will also put the the link for your podcast uh, that you are doing. 
regularly. And now the question is, because we started this show with the haunted house you were telling me, and also the San, uh, the San, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And before I hit the record button, you told me that there is a story why San Francisco keeps all the souls from dead people <laughs> there. So yes. share with the audience. Yes. Well, San Francisco is known for its crazy, and we are kind of proud of the craziness that we have here. Uh, but that is something that is older than the city itself. Uh, it's as old as the land. And of course, people who have come here are usually very enamored by the fog that rolls in in the middle of summer. We call August Foggest because that's where the most fog is in the middle of the summer. But that was always here, even before there was a, a city or the There was uh, even uh, the uh, immigrants that came from Spain. Uh, what we had was the Ohlone Native American Indians here. And the Ohlone looked at the land here in a very interesting way. There are five mountains that surround the uh, Bay Area itself. And all of those were considered talons in a claw, basically, by the Ohlone. They were hooks. And on those hooks was a giant web, an invisible web that they could not see. But they believed that that acted like a net, that as the winds would blow from the interior of the continent, as things were blowing off towards the edge of the continent, before they got to the sea, this net would catch all of the dead souls. And so the souls are here and everything is just supercharged with the spiritual nature of centuries and centuries of people. And some folks that, that are drawn to this place because of that, at least that's the belief that some people come here from across the country just to get their crazy on because they are susceptible to those kind of energies. And when you're here, I can tell you that I could take you into the woods and there are certain areas of the woods that I could take you that I would be surprised if you didn't feel something. And there are certain streets that I could take you in San Francisco at a certain time of the night that it will feel like you're being watched. Wow, that's interesting. So I guess next time I come back to <laughs> San Francisco, we have to arrange a meeting. I do some magic for you and then you take me to the scary places. Sounds so I interesting. I would love that. Yes, <laughs> I love magic. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool, Scott. So with the Haunted House, share with us your experiences when you have been there. And can you also give a clue for the listeners if they want to go there and watch the Haunted House? Sure. Well, if anybody uh, uh, is going to be around uh, around the Halloween time period, I think it goes until at least Halloween, October 31st. They have candlelight tours of the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose. You can look online and find Win just type in Winchester Mystery House and it will go to this building. And just taking a look at a picture of the building, you will realize how wild and creepy it can be. What I will say is that I've gone into the Winchester Mystery House during the day for a normal tour, and it didn't have much of a feeling to it. Uh, what I'll say is when I did the candlelight tour, it's vamped up for Halloween, so it's, it's set to be humorous. I had really interesting times when I walked alone late at night around the grounds outside of the building. 
And it's an interesting thing. Winchester Mystery House is free unless you want to go inside of the building for the tour. But uh, as of right now, they have a midway outside with jugglers and musicians and everything that you can spend your time being entertained by them. Or you can walk the grounds. It's a very, very big place. And it's very quiet. You're in the middle of the largest city in the Bay Area, San Jose. And I found myself getting nervous walking down a very shadowy area between two large pillars inside of the house or on the outside of the house. It's a small area that takes you to the stables. And as I was walking by, I just saw that the water fountains were all running. They were the old fashioned twist knob water fountains. Now I'm sure they probably turned them on, uh, for the, the guests, but it, freaked me out. There's just a certain energy that happens when you're alone and you're in the shadow of something so big and so quiet and your imagination does run wild with you. Yes, I can feel that. Whoa, that is really spooky. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for sharing this story with us, Scott. And it has been a Great pleasure to have you on the show today, and I'm looking forward to stay in touch with you and see you latest at Podcast Movement 2019, but maybe yes. even before in San Francisco or somewhere else around the world. So keep inspiring people with your horror and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Victoria. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this Halloween special with Scott Pradley and his new book, Screaming for Pleasure. And maybe you feel even that inspired that you are thinking of starting your own podcast, maybe about horror stories, horror movies, and why people love it so much to be scared and see all these horrible things. So Scott has this amazing horror podcast you will find in the show notes. And in case you are serious about creating your own show, can be really entertaining, then you can check out my new book, How Podcasting Can Change Your Life, Unleash Endless Possibilities. There will be also a link for this in the show notes. You can get it from Amazon as an ebook or hardcover cover whatever you prefer and after reading you definitely know if podcasting is the right thing for you and could change your life too so there are really endless possibilities and also endless topics and i think whatever is entertaining is always interesting for people so maybe you really feel inspired now And I promised you a double feature, meaning I do have another guest for Halloween. Her name is Margie Kerr, and she is a sociologist and explores our fears. And she really loves haunted places and houses, even since she was a child. So she will be now in the next episode of this Halloween special and diving a little deeper into our fears and why some of them are good and others are more bad. Also talking a little bit about the comfort zone. So this will be also an interesting episode and she shares with us also some cool Halloween tips, what you could do tonight with your family and friends to feel scared and just enjoy this special night with all the pumpkins and shocking moments. So stay tuned in and just tune in for the next 
episode. Until next time, create some magic. <laughs>